Hello, my friends. Welcome. My name is Joe. This is The Joe Martino Show. And today I want to talk to you about the things that matter the most for your health. Relationships, of course. It's not your eating. It's not your exercise, although they do matter. But the thing that is the best indicator for your health is relationships. And I want to leave you with three questions to ask yourself about your current relationships and how you are pursuing intimacy and wholeness. Let's kick it off. This is The Joe Martino Show. You're listening to The Joe Martino Show, a podcast dealing with all things emotional, relational, and human nature. Joe is a licensed counselor in the state of Michigan, specializing in relationship therapy. He is also the author of the book, The Emotionally Secure Couple. All advice offered in this episode is offered for entertainment and educational purposes only. Enjoy the show. All right, friends. Hello. Welcome. Welcome back. I hope that you have been enjoying the uh, dual podcast that I've been doing, or I guess not dual podcast, but the multiple people podcast that I've been doing with my wife and my daughter talking about a variety of things. I was hoping to have one for you today on the difference between expressing our emotions and being connected to our emotions from a young woman's perspective. Yes, my daughter's perspective. One of the things that uh, she says that she hears a lot, I, I think I've got this right, is that she she hears a lot from her friends, you know, they're dating a guy and he'll lose his temper or he'll be, you know, express these big emotions in big ways. And, and they're like, well, you know, he's so connected to his emotions. And a lot of times she's like, well, no, wait, expressing your emotions is not the same as uh, being connected to your emotions. But we're not going to have that today. We're going to do that another day. I think in radio they call that a teaser. And so I just did a teaser. In fact, I'm a little bit off my schedule uh, of what I intended to record because of scheduling issues. Uh, This is something that I do as a labor of love. I don't do it for money. I don't do it for profit. I have turned down people who have offered uh, to do revenue increases for us through the podcast. In other words, advertisers. I want to control the content. I want to control the message that we're sending out completely. And I don't want to to have that in any way diminished or taken down from people who are, you know, maybe have a different uh, goal for this podcast than I do or a different objective than I do. And so we've stayed away from that intentionally. Uh, I do take time to kind of draw out like, hey, these are the podcast topics that I'm going to do. And I've got them all lined up and I don't know which one to do. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start with a book recommendation. The book is called The Good Life by Robert Walgren and Mark Schultz. Both, uh, are, are very smart people. They they work at Harvard. They're part of a longitudinal study. And, and essentially, I believe 84 years, eight generations of people, eight decades, excuse me, of people studying on what makes a good life. Originally started with college students and then, quote, ruffians. And it turned out that there wasn't much of a difference in outcomes for the college students. Remember, 84 years ago, not everyone went to college like today. It wasn't glorified high school. It was actually something that required some rigorous investment on your part to get in educationally. It required some advantages that not everyone had. College, and you know, we could talk about that, like the the making of college accessible to everyone. The message that ran for about 30 years in the last part of the last century of everyone should get good grades in high school so that they can go to college and get a degree and then get a good job. What did that do? That actually just moved the bar for growing up in, in a way that was not helpful. We went from, hey, you're a grown up when you graduate high school to you're a grown up 
when you graduate college to now. I know guys who have said to me when they're turning 40, I guess it's time to grow up, to which I always say, no, that bell rung 20 years ago and you just missed it. It's good that you hear it today, so please answer. Right? We could talk about that, and that's not what the book's about. It is about relationships. So obviously it's about something that I'm passionate about, and it's about how do you enjoy the second half of your life. I have a birthday coming up. Uh, that uh, my kids keep telling me is proof that I'm old. No, I'm not going to tell you which one it is. Uh, It's not a start of a new decade, I'll tell you that much. But it is the last one in the decade that I'm in. And so I have a birthday coming up. I'm very interested in how do you enjoy life. I I know a lot of people who think, well, if I had money, I'd be happy. And and I grew up poor, very poor. Um, My parents uh, did did a good job. In, in making sure that all of our needs were met, and yet we were poor, we struggled. Uh, both my parents worked extremely hard, and nowadays it's pretty common to have two parents work. It was not so much back then, and and we went to a, a private religious school. My parents sacrificed for that because of their values and, and those types of things, and I grew up thinking, you know what, if there, there has to be a certain amount of money that you make, and, and then you'll be happy, and it turns out that that's not true, and so as we lean into this idea of what makes us happy, one of the things that I've learned as I've grown is I know people who are extremely wealthy whose families are just a mess. I know people who are extremely poor whose families are incredibly solid. And I know the reverse of that too, right? I know people who have money who their families are solid. And I know people who are extremely under-resourced and their families are a mess. It's not about the money. That's the point. And this book talks about there are things that matter. Eating matters, right? You need to eat right. You need to be moving and those types of things. Those things matter. But it also talks about, and this is the thing that caught most people off guard, I think, when they were doing the research, and and it's been done again and again by other institutions, the thing that matters most is the satisfaction you find in the relationships that you have. And here's the best predictor they found for your health and wellness at 80 when you're 50. How satisfied are you in your relationships at 50? That matters more than any other metric. That's insanity. In fact, there's this incredibly sad story told in the book uh, about a couple who actually lived here in Grand Rapids uh, at the end of their life. And I'm recording from Grand Rapids today. My blinds are open. Uh, the sun is coming in. It's glorious. But okay, I digress. My ADHD, my coffee hasn't kicked in yet. There's this sad story told where the interviewers fly out to Grand Rapids from Massachusetts. They meet with the couple in individual as individuals, and then they meet with them as a couple. And the one question was, what is your biggest fear now? And the husband somehow turned the question around so that his wife answered first. He was supposed to answer first, and he turned it around so that she had to answer first. She answers it. The researcher and the wife have a conversation, and then the wife looks at the husband and said, well, you didn't answer the question. And he said, that's because I'm afraid my answer is selfish. My greatest fear is that, you, uh, that, I'll, that you'll die first and I'll be left here alone without you. And then they like, you know, do the little three dots to show that that story is done. But then they transfer right over to it, uh, back to it again, excuse me. And the writer tells us that the man's worst fear did come true, that his wife died first and he died six weeks later. And, you know, you see this, if you study this, you'll see this a lot. Couples who have put in 40, 50 years together, who have done the long run together, when one of them dies, the other one follows relatively quickly. And sometimes... 
it's just listed as natural causes, but it would certainly seem to not be that big of a logical jump to say that it was from a broken heart. And so if you if you like to read books like this, I would totally recommend this book. I will tell you that it is two academic researchers writing, and so it does read like an academic paper. Uh, they tell you a lot of things that I think are not necessarily necessary for the common person, uh, and I would include myself in that. You, you know, I've written the academic papers and the difference in an academic paper and a paper that I read or a, a book that I read for general knowledge, my expectations of those two products is different. And this book reads like an academic paper. It reads uh, a very methodical, very, you know, step-by-step. -step. They tell you what's coming. And a lot of some of my, my uh, finance and or philosophy books that I read are written like that. There's one guy that I, I read. I, I like all of his stuff. I've read it all, all of his books twice. Uh, he's a finance numbers guy. And at the beginning of each chapter, he lists out all of the subtitles for the chapter coming up, which is just unnecessary in my opinion. But good book. I'd love for you to read it. I want to talk about some ideas that I have in relationship to that today. Here's the thing that, that is in the book. You don't have to have a lot of relationships. In fact, most of the research that you read, and some of the, what I'm talking about now is taken outside of the book. I've, I've read other research. People who truly find deep satisfaction in their relationships rarely have more than two or three that they're intimate with. There's typically a core group of people the intimate circle that does not exceed six people. And this research, again, has been done over and over again. And one of the biggest frustrations that my clients have is that they feel like they should have more and more friends. And when I start to draw it out, and maybe I draw a stick figure of them, I love drawing stick figures, mostly because that's all I can draw. And I draw circles around them, and I ask them, how many people do would you say are your close friends? They're like, two, that's it, or one. That's really common. And not only is that really common, it tends to be healthy because it allows you to invest in the relationships that matter the most, the most. In other words, a lot of times when, when we look at people's lives, what we see is that they're investing in, re, in relationships out of proportion. They're investing in relationships that don't matter the most to them with the most of their energy. And this is, this is certainly a byproduct of at least part of our thinking where everybody expects to be in everybody's group, right? You're not allowed to go on a girl's trip and put it on Facebook because the one person that you didn't invite, their feelings are going to be hurt. You're not allowed to go uh, out west on an outdoors trip with a bunch of guys because you're not going to put up, you're not going to take one guy and he's going to get mad and, and it's going to create drama. Or there's going to be somebody who looks at you like you're in their intimate circle and you don't look at them like they're in your intimate circle, but you don't want their feelings to be hurt. So what do you do? You go invest a lot of time into them and it doesn't work over Overall, your overall satisfaction with your relationships goes down, not up. And remember, this is the metric that best predicts our health because we are designed to be relational beings, but we're not designed to be mass producing relational beings. And that's where we get in trouble, I think, because we view popularity with satisfaction. One of the things I told my kids, my daughter, since I still have a young son, well, he's 10. One of the things that I told my daughters repeatedly in late elementary school, middle school, and junior high was don't worry about being popular because being popular in anything from high school on down typically means bad problems 
for later in life. Typically, it creates a false narrative in a person's head and they struggle with intimacy as they get older. And not only that, when you go actually and look at the research of kids who are identified as popular in high school on down and talk to them, right, where the research talked to the kids, most of them felt lonely. Most of them felt alone. Most of them felt like they couldn't express themselves because they had to stay inside this narrow confines of the popularity definition that ran for them. And here's the thing about intimate relationships. It lets you run your own narrative. An intimate relationship says, I love you exactly where you're at and I want you to grow. It's not either or. I love you exactly the way you are and I want you to grow. And I'm going to take a, a moment here and I'm going to talk to married couples. One of the common questions when I have this conversation with people, one of the common questions that I get is, well, like the person I spend the most time with is, is my wife. Is that okay? The person I spend the most time with is my husband. Yeah, that's actually, when you look at the study, that's actually the number one person that people said, hey, this is the person that I'm most invested in and I find the most satisfaction with. I actually think that stat is from what's called the Duke study, but I'm not sure of that, to be honest. With you. I've looked at about seven versions of this research, but it is from one of them if you want to look it up. And so that's one of the reasons that I tell people when they say to me, well, my best friend, blah, blah, blah. I always ask them, why is that person your best friend and not your spouse if you're married? If you're not, that's kind of a self-explanatory question. And, and people are like, well, what's what's the big deal? Well, here's the thing. Your best friend might move. You might move. And long, longevity in relationships matters. And I've talked before about there's a natural lifespan to relationships. I have, I have had friends that have been in my life who I still love today and they love me. In fact, just two weeks ago, three weeks ago, a friend of mine who was very influential early in my life said, hey, I, I, it was his birthday and I missed his birthday because I had COVID. Three years I stayed away from that bugger and it got me finally and I was down for a week and, and I didn't send him the text, you know, hey, happy birthday. I didn't call him, I didn't do anything. When I got out of kind of waking up from COVID, I sent him a text that said, hey, I'm really sorry I missed your birthday. I love you. Happy birthday. I hope it was a great day. He wrote me back and said, I love you. Uh, my only regret is that we weren't able to do more uh, work together. And and that's because he lives 10 and a half hours from me, or I live 10 and a half hours from him because he didn't move. I did. And and that's part of life. The chances that my wife leaves and moves are, are much, much lower. Now, yes, in our society, we have a much higher divorce rate. That's a different podcast, probably a different, different episode. But today, what I want you to think about is what are the relationships that you're putting the most time and energy into and what is your level of satisfaction? And sometimes it's because we think we have to have five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 super best friends and we don't have the energy to actually have that many best friends. In fact, for us as therapists, that's usually a sign of some sort of trauma and mental distress when someone has 10, 11, 12, 8, 9, 10 best friends. That's usually an indicator that there was some sort of trauma. And quite frankly, the person at the very best is hedging their bets on the best friends that are going to leave. One of the things that is often common. I had someone tell me this, you know, they were talking to me about a woman in their community who calls all these people their best friend. And she said, and she calls me her best friend and it drives me nuts because I don't trust her, but I don't know how to tell her that and politely ask her to stop calling me her best friend. And so one of the things I want you to look at is I want you to kind of think about what relationships are getting the most of your time and effort and how satisfied are you in those relationships? Now, that does not mean that there won't be distress. I love my wife. Sometimes she drives me crazy. My wife loves me. I believe that with my whole heart. And there are days that I drive her crazy. There are days she's mad at me. Believe it or not, that happens. And it's okay. That actually is intimacy. You'll remember when we talked about four levels of friendship, 
The fourth and most deepest and rarest form of intimacy is intimacy that is the result of a relationship that has navigated distress and anger and come out the other side. When you intentionally go through distress and anger because you love the person that you're angry with or that is angry with you, you build the relationship. That's one of the best ways that we build deep intimacy. So I want you to look at how many relationships you're trying to build deep intimacy. Now look, here's the thing. I have friends that I'm close to. I have friends that are acquaintances. And I have friends that I'm deeply intimate with. That last category is pretty minimal because you cannot manage that many deeply intimate relationships. And then here's a really good measurement for that. How comfortable are you sitting in silence with whatever it is? So there are intimate friends that you could not talk to for six weeks, six months, maybe even six years. I I don't really know what the back number on that research is. And when you start talking to them again, you are set up and moving forward as though nothing stopped. You are good to go. And even with some of those relationships, you'll be totally comfortable sitting in silence. Then there's the deeply intimate. Those are relationships where you can sit in silence together because there is a connection built up through mirror neurons, oxytocin, those types of things, and you can sit in silence. That's a really good measurement. Now, here's the thing. A lot of times I'll get pushed back on that, and some people will say to me, well, I'm not good sitting in silence at all. Then, And I'm not being funny here. You should go talk to a therapist and get involved in some talk therapy because that is typically a sign of some emotional distress, trauma, emotional disorder. There's something going on that your spirit isn't okay sitting in silence and just listening to the voices running your head or voice. This is what we're looking for for intimacy. Okay, so here's the thing. How many relationships are you trying to invest in? What's the amount of time that you're investing in them? How comfortable are you sitting in silence? Those are the three questions I want you to walk away with from today's episode. I want you to chew on those. I want you to think about them. I want them to help transform your life. We've got more uh, podcasts coming with Erica and Kendra, uh, guest hosting. I'm hoping to do some interviews. I dropped the ball on one interview. I thought I had scheduled an appointment or uh, an interview time, and I didn't. So I'm going to have to reach back out to his secretary, and we're going to talk about that. If you have a topic that you want me to discuss, feel free to send me an email. If you want to be a guest on the show, send me an email. Tell me what the topic is you want to talk about and why you think it would be compelling. I'll get back to you one way or the other. All right. Thanks so much for listening. We'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, please share with a friend. And hey, give us that rating in your podcast store. Until next time, change possible.